Welcome to Triple Take, the podcast where we talk to interesting people about the book, album, and film that shaped them. I'm Carla Jean Whitley. I'm Matt Scalisi. And I'm John Hammontree. And today we're here with Taylor Robinson of Arc Stories. Now, if you aren't familiar with Arc Stories, I'm kind of tempted to tell you to hit pause, go download their podcast, and come back to us after the fact. But I don't want you to forget about Triple Take. It is a storytelling event in Birmingham, Alabama with a podcast that, of course, is available everywhere because that's how podcasts work. And I'm a little bit obsessed. So, hi, Taylor. Hi. Thanks for being here. Um, It's my pleasure. Glad to be here. So, let's start just briefly with sort of the highlights of how ARC Stories came to be. How did you get involved in the storytelling business? So, I I got a degree in radio, TV, film um, in college 15, 16 years ago. I took a job doing video production Mm -hmm. um, with a company that's here in Birmingham and moved here. And I would say that that's where my storytelling when I got my wings, right? Okay. And then I started cutting my chops doing that, and I fell in love with the process of crafting stories, fiction, nonfiction. There's an organization out of New York called The Moth, and they do something similar to what we do, and basically it's live storytelling, and they do a podcast. And This American Life picked up a lot of their stories and started playing it, and so that's where I heard about it. Well, I basically said, we're going to do this. We're gonna do a storytelling event with our friends in Birmingham, and this is the day that we're gonna do it. If you've never been, it's super intimate. Mm -hmm. That's like the word that I use. It's a very delicate, intimate scenario that we craft that way on purpose. There's not, there's not lighting cues and music cues and up next, we've got a story, Mm -hmm. there's none of that. It's just real down and dirty. The next person is a school teacher from Hoover. And they get up there, they get up out of the audience, walk up and tell a story. And so, as it's grown, the big thing in my head has always been, how big is too big? When does it stop feeling intimate? Right. And now we're selling them out, 400 people come, standing room only. It's just wall-to-wall people mm-hmm. in this big, enormous room. And to me, that feels mm-hmm. big enough. I feel like if you go past, I feel like if we go past that, and you're sitting on the back row and you can't see the, like, the intricate details of the face right. and the expressions that the person's making whenever they're telling a mm-hmm. heartfelt story or something that's funny, then you lose some of that intimacy. And also, mm-hmm. librarians from the Hoover Public Library aren't going to go, yeah, I, I can get up and tell a story. Right. You know what I mean? Because it's, it's, it's a different world. Yeah. So. so when is your next event? The next event is Saturday, September mm-hmm. 17th. Um, our theme for the night is Go Fight Win, so stories about sports. We're excited that AL.com is sponsoring that event, so a little um, tooting of our own horn there. Got to slip that in. If people are interested in telling a story, how do they do that? The process is very simple. At least we try to keep it very simple. Um, If you have a story that matches the theme of an event that we have coming up, you email it to us. We have a or we have a thing on our website that we call the story portal. And then from there, the process starts where we work with uh, each storyteller, regardless of who they are, mm-hmm. to help them get the story as good as it can be. Some people, they come to us ready to rock and roll. But then there are other people who have great stories. They just don't know how to tell it. They don't know right. how to sequencing. They don't understand s- structure and all of that. And so that's what we're there for. Mm-hmm. We help 
okay, you want to make sure that you say this mm-hmm. at the beginning and then make sure that, 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 that. So mm-hmm. that's the way that it works. And so we believe everybody has great stories. We also believe that anybody can tell a story well if you're willing to take a little mm-hmm. advice. And mm-hmm. that's what we're there for. Wonderful. And finally, for our non-Birmingham listeners, can you tell us briefly about the podcast? The vast majority of the podcast features stories that were recorded at our live events. And so um, the podcast is True Stories Told in the Southern Tradition. Let's talk about Taylor. What are the book, album, and film that shaped you? Okay, so the book is um, the book of Ecclesiastes that is in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, the film is Jaws, Steven Spielberg. Surely you've heard of it. I've heard of it. <laughs> I actually haven't seen it, but I don't do the film segment. You haven't seen it? No. Well, we'll get there. And then the the album is The Stranger by Billy Joel. When I think of influential, I think of back in the day when I was deciding what I wanted to be when I grew up, and all the inspiration that kind of led me down the path that I'm on. And so I picked these three things that were very influential for me at that time Mm -hmm. in my life, 15, 16 years ago. So Taylor, Jaws, to, to start our conversation about this, tell me about your first experience watching this movie. Uh, my, I don't have a very vivid first time watching the movie. I remember it was on TV when I was a little kid, Yeah. right? Fourth, fifth grade. And I remember watching it and being absolutely terrified by it. You know, like everyone is when they see it sure. the first time as a little kid. Yeah. I can confidently say that when I think about the film Jaws, it has completely changed what it means to me over the course of my life. Mm -hmm. And at every moment that I've like intersected with the movie, I am learning something new and the movie teaches it to me. Okay, let me let me clarify. Yeah, go for it. And it's just a monster movie about a shark. Sure. Right? So um when I was a kid, I was terrified, right? And so obviously that had a huge effect on me. But then as I got into college and I started learning things about filmmaking, um, this is Spielberg's first movie. He made it when he was 25. That's wonderfully inspiring. Mm-hmm. But then at the same time, I started studying screenwriting and storytelling and story structure and all of those things. And when you're learning those things about screenwriting, and you hold those things up to a movie like Jaws, and you begin, like it's one of the three or four movies that I was able to hold up what I was learning about holding an audience's attention, character development, all of these things, and the movie has all of it in spades. My senior in college, I got to work on my first film, I was actually getting to do some production, the DVD of Jaws comes out, and the DVD has all the behind the scenes stuff. Yeah. Right? Which is one of the most it's one of the most interesting stories about the making of a film ever. Yeah. Right. And so for me at the time when the DVD came out, that was the time when I was learning all about film and set and all of these things and the biggest the guy that I admire the most is Steven Spielberg guy. Here's a movie about his first time to really do a smash hit, sure. you know. At the time I'm watching the movie, he's done everything. Like mm-hmm. he's the king of Hollywood. Right. I hear those stories 
and it like has this huge effect on me not because the story's great the movie is great the story is great mm-hmm. but because also the story of the story was really influential to me one of the the big storylines in the behind the scenes is the fact that they had this big robot shark right. that never worked and so every night Spielberg and the executive producers would go back to the hotel room and rewrite the movie in an in an attempt to write the robot shark out of the movie. Right. And, and it's almost by accident they created such a masterpiece. And when I say masterpiece is the thing that's great about Jaws is the fact that you don't really get to see the shark that much. Right. And that's where the genius comes from because they, they had so many limitations in making the film. That's what made the film so great. Um, because they had to be creative and they had to come up with, how do we make it scary and not show it to you? And that's where the suspense and that's where they, you know, that's where they cut their teeth as storytellers. And you begin to learn that even by proxy, watching the behind the scenes, it's not about what you see, it's about what you cause to happen inside of the audience. Obviously the, the technical side of it, you know, had a big influence on you as, as in your, in your work, but Thematically, you talked about how you you revisit it and it means something different to you later. Well, one of the things that I think watching it as an adult that hits you about this movie is when when you're a kid and you watch it, the scariest thing in this movie is the shark. Yeah. When you get a little older, the, the thing that I think plays in your on your mind a little bit more watching it is it's that everybody knew there was this monster mm-hmm. and the grown-ups aren't doing anything about it. Yeah. That's kind of that to to me that's that's an interesting thing that's hit me at an older age watching it is it's almost scarier to look at human incompetency than the monsters themselves absolutely and and i think that even spielberg would say that it's not it's it's a monster movie but the thing that makes it so wonderful is that it's really not about the monster right, right. it's about these people and they live in this city and you got this new guy who's the new police chief i think is a chief yeah, he's he's a chief. I don't know what he's the he's chief, of. chief yeah. yeah, he's the police chief yeah. of this small town, Amity, and um, he's the only one that seems to want to shut down the beaches. But it's the big weekend, and so like exactly like you said, it's about the internal turmoil mm-hmm. that goes on in all of these adults. And like you said, when you're a kid, there's parts of me that are like, "Come on, let's get to the part where the shark comes again." Because right. that's what I'm watching this for. But yeah. when you become an adult. All the in-between parts are what becomes so great. Sure. Because you're like, these idiots, like, that kid just got killed. Why don't they shut down the beach? It's like, the shark is huge. He's huge. You've got to shut down the beach. And then you play all of that. And then you've got this outsider, the guy who's in charge, the hero of the movie. He's he's this outsider, and he's brought his family in, and he wants things to work out. And it becomes about an outsider just wanting to become a part of the group but he has standards and discipline and he doesn't want more people to get eaten by the shark so give me your favorite scene from this movie okay so there are a lot of great scenes in jaws um but my favorite is by far the scene where um they're all on the boat the sun is going down and they start having they basically start having the i'll show you my scar and they start comparing each other's scars to one another and they're drinking they get a little drunk and then they start singing that song and so it's a really small scene that all takes place in a room smaller than this room on, on this boat. And the sun, is, the sun is going down. And um, it all kind of comes to a really, really small moment where the captain guy, what's his name? The crazy guy. 
tells the story about right. being on Quinn. Yeah. yeah, he's on. He tells the story about being on the battleship that two Japan that the Japanese sunk, and they went into the water, and half of the people who were in the water got eaten by sharks. And he tells us, and it gets really, really small. And then they start singing this song about farewell and adieu, you fair Spanish ladies. It's this really small moment. And looking at it as a filmmaker, as a storyteller, it's a lesson. It's a textbook lesson on dynamics. Small than big and small than mm-hmm. big. And that just builds the tension. And the scene ends as the shark <laughs> begins using his nose to drill holes, to like pound holes in the side of the boat. Right. And then, you know, the then we're down, we're on our way to the climax from there. It's just a fantastic scene. The album that most shaped you, The Stranger, came out, I believe, the year before you were born. So can yeah. you tell me how you became a Billy Joel fan? Yeah, so all of the choices that I picked. They're absolutely autobiographical. This one, no different. So um, I would say that my freshman year in college, I was the, no, my sophomore year in college, excuse me, um, was the year that I fell in love with music. And the year before that was the year that I got a hold of this Billy Joel album. Sure. Um, and I grew up listening to Billy Joel. My, my dad was a huge music head. He loved music. He was... He stayed up late. I remember as a little kid watching my dad stay up really late watching MTV when MTV had first come on. Um, and I had always known these Billy Joel songs, you know, kind of off in the distance. And even when I was a kid, Billy Joel had hits like We Didn't Start the Fire and mm-hmm. What's That River of Dreams? Uh, go up and then that one. But all of this, this Stranger album, it all happened way before. Um, it was before I was born. So, um, I got a car, I was dating a girl who lived two and a half hours away, and my mother bought for me um, Billy Joel's Greatest Hits, and that, I listened to it a little bit, and just doing a little bit of research, that led me to the Stranger album, and I bought that Stranger album, and so every single weekend, I was driving back and forth from where I was going to school to my hometown, to see my girlfriend, who's now my wife, so hey. it's not all in vain. Well done. <laughs> uh, back and forth, two and a half hours, and the and I would just murder that album, just listening to it, top to bottom, top to bottom, top. And I loved it, and I loved it. Eat so much so that my freshman year in college, I talked to my parents about becoming a music major. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm embarrassed. It's funny. I'm embarrassed by it. It could be worse. You could yeah, have become like I a have... Billy Joel like, groupie or yeah, something. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I wanted to be a music major. Because what I loved about the album is obviously the music and the songs and just the, the story that it tells. But also the story of this Billy Joel guy. Like he's just, you know, from, the, from New York, didn't have anything. His parents were poor. And he taught himself music and he... And so I like those behind-the-scenes stories yeah. you can tell from this. And so I just loved it. You know, it's funny because, like, in terms of commercial popularity, Billy Joel just, like, stands out way oh, ahead. Yeah. But I think in terms of critical appreciation, people just kind of overlook him now. Like, you know, people talk about Springsteen and, and U2 and these other bands that kind of captured that sound. But there's so much storytelling in this album. Like, I remember when Billy Joel 
toured with Elton John a few years ago, and Elton oh, yeah. John was kind of the big draw for people. But I was, you know, revisiting this album in preparation for this conversation, and like like you said, you have the broader story of the album, and then each individual song has these self-contained stories, and then scenes from an Italian restaurant has oh, stories yeah. within stories, yeah. and it's just this like complex layer. I mean, it's his masterpiece, and oh, I think. Yeah. In some ways, because he's had so many major hits, he kind of gets overlooked. Is there a certain song where the story just kind of reached out and grabbed you from the get-go? At that time, whenever I was falling in love with the album, it was the scenes from Italian Restaurant. Um, And the reason is because of all the little stories. And so at the time, when this story was really important to me, I was 19, ah, 19, 20 years old. And I I still have big dreams for my life, and I want to do great things, and I want to change the world and all of that like we all do. But at the time, that's all I ever really thought about. I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. And the song kind of tells the story of these high school sweethearts who get together and they kind of, uh, and things kind of don't work out. And then they, you, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. And so I remember kind of grabbing hold of that uh, song and, and being inspired by, I guess, the negative that was in the story yeah. and being inspired to like, I gotta do something great and I want my relationships to be important and I want my marriage to last, <laughs> all of these things. And so whenever I, whenever I hear that song, it doesn't matter where I am. When I hear that song, I think about driving back and forth yeah. and becoming like resolute about like, if I'm gonna marry, cause I was thinking about marrying this girl. Is your wife a Billy Joel fan? Oh yeah. yeah, oh yeah. She's a big Billy Joel fan. Um, Maybe just by proxy, but we both love it. I mean, if it comes on, we listen to it. We listen to it. And we just this past year, she bought me the LP. Uh, one of the, I think, it's not original. It's the second pressing of The Stranger. Just because oh, I just awesome. got into yeah. um, collecting yeah. records. And so she's trying to get me all the records that I love. But this is definitely not a Texas no. album. It's in, it's in <laughs> no, no way. No. It's not, I mean, it's a New York album. Absolutely. But I think, like, for so many of us, it's these New York artists, whether it's, you know, Jay-Z or Billy Joel or, you know, for some people now, Taylor Swift talking about her moving to New York. What, you know, as somebody growing up in the South in the 80s, how could you relate to such a decidedly New York album? That's a great, that's a great question. You know, um, I think... At that time, and I, I keep going back to the where I was at that time, but I think it is, it's important to think about why I fell in love with the album. I had just been able to do some traveling. Uh, my senior year in high school, we traveled around the country and we did some, I actually got to go to New York and I think we sang the national anthem at a Mets game. I think, hey, I don't cool. really remember, but we were in New York and like I, I considered myself, and now it's silly, but I considered myself a well-traveled person and I, I love other cultures and going to see other places and so the the Billy Joel album and Billy Joel is a character period such a strong New York flavor that I at the time thought that I I, I mean I get I know what that's like and I know what New York people are like and so I can love this album unlike other people in Texas can right, love it right. you know because that's what you do when you're 19 you find reasons that you're different than everyone else <laughs> 
Yeah, no, I, I did the same thing. That's probably why I became a Springsteen fan. See, there you have it. I was listening to the New York sound. I'm like, yes, I get it. I I'm get it. And all of my else. friends who like, who do they like? Brooks and Dunn? They don't get it. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think I started listening to country music at all until I was living in San Francisco. And then I was like, well, I have to. It's part of my southern roots. That's like, right. I love so it. So then it becomes something different. I love it. So Taylor, you know whenever you ask people about a book that is significant to them mm. and you live in the Bible Belt, <laughs> okay. you expect almost to say, no, but besides the Bible, right? you were the first triple take guest who, to whom I've said, which book influenced you the most? And you responded, the Bible. Yes. And... I'm kind of excited about that, actually. So, oh. you know, I said when you got in here earlier today that I did not finish reading the book before your arrival. <laughs> Although I did joke with my co-hosts that, you know, I'm actually pretty close. So maybe I should have gone ahead and knocked it out. I think I've actually knocked out most of the Torah, maybe all of the Torah. So when you started, you started at the beginning. Because oh. most of the people have a good mm-hmm. working knowledge of the New Testament. Well, I finished the New Testament. Okay, good. Um, I mean, not today, but yeah, I've read all of the New Testament, and I have chipped away at the Torah and read several other books of the Old Testament, but, you know, I do try to read the book before people arrive, and that is part of why I asked you to narrow your focus. (laughs) What book in the book? So, (laughs) the book of the Bible that you said has most influenced you is Ecclesiastes. But let's talk for a second about the Bible as a whole, because you said, well, no, of course, if I'm going to talk about the thing that has most influenced me, that's it. Okay, so I grew up in a small town in Texas, which is... you know, despite what people in Alabama think, Texas is also part of the Bible Belt. Grew up in a Christian family um, and went to church every time the door was open. Um, and I'm very, very, very thankful for that. Um, and uh, over the course of growing up and learning a little bit about myself and learning about my parents and who they were, and I came to a place where, um, like most people who are of faith, do I came to a place where I was questioning everything and um, I was lucky to have a couple of good strong believers in my life who said you need to you need to spend some time reading the Bible Mm -hmm. because uh, you're gonna get bad advice from most people but you'll get good advice about what you should do from the people who are closest to you the people who are the most closest to you who can be honest with you and then also the Bible it was it was then uh, I was probably a junior, senior. And, I mean, my questioning of my faith happened, started happening when I was a junior um, in high school. So this is 96-ish. And I started questioning it. And I questioned it all the way through probably my junior year in college. So this is a long four-year period. And, but it was during that period that I was spending as much time as I could reading the Bible, studying the Bible, studying things that people had written about the Bible, just because... I wanted to know that if this thing was something that I believed to be true, that I wanted to know and believe that it was true. Right. And um, being this good Southern Baptist that I was, we held the Bible to a certain standard. I came to a place where because of the Bible, because of the things that I learned to be true about the Bible, it became this rock, this foundational rock that sits in the corner of, you know, 
everything that I am. And, and so um, when you say your favorite book is the Bible, that's cheating. I, be- I believe right. it's cheating, and I think that you would probably say that's true because the Bible isn't just like a book. It's not like a Cormac McCarthy book or a Johnny Ca- Cash autobiography. It's, which is good, by the way. Which is fantastic. It's wonderful. But saying the Bible is your favorite book is like saying Italian food is my favorite meal. It's, the reason that it's influential and the reason that I hold it very dear in my heart is because I believe that all things, any question that you have about anything, the answer can be found somewhere within the pages of the Bible. Um, and if you seek to find answers to any question that you have, mm-hmm. the answers are there. And so that's the reason that I say it's got to be the Bible. Right. Because since I was a junior in high school, I have looked to the Bible and the two or three people that I'm the closest to for answers to all of life's toughest questions. And I know this sounds cliche, maybe it is, but this is absolutely true for me. So that's the reason that it is mm-hmm. my favorite, most influential book. Yeah, mm. and let's talk about Ecclesiastes in particular. <laughs> so, you know, I asked you for a lens into this conversation, basically, because the Bible, man, we could go on for years. but. Ecclesiastes, you say, is surprising to some people. I actually find that kind of resonates with me, but why does it stand out to you? Well, as a Christian who believes the story of Christ, um, it's hard to say that a book from the Old Testament Mm -hmm. is your favorite book from the Bible to start off. the New Testament's wonderful. It's a fantastic story. God saving the world. But whenever I think about Ecclesiastes, the reason that I say Ecclesiastes is my favorite book in the Bible is because my life has been a series of perspective changes. Ecclesiastes is the great equalizer when it comes time, when, when, when you need to think about what is actually important on a day-to-day, boots-on-the-ground, day-to-day living as a Christian or just a person in general. Ecclesiastes is the perfect place to come back to because it says what we all want to believe and, that, and the, it says the thing that we all know is absolutely true that you can f- try to get riches and you can try to have everything and you can tr- just spin your wheels your whole life and your life could be meaningless. Mm-hmm. And like having a lot of money doesn't matter. Having a lot, and, and it's written, you know, ancient it's ancient so having a lot of livestock having a lot of gardens and having lots of slaves and all of this this all meaningless and what is it that man should find his joy in and it always comes back to find joy in god find joy in your family and find joy in the work that you're doing today right and it's funny to me that some people think of ecclesiastes as a bleak book And it's funny to me that people hold that perspective for exactly the reasons that you're describing. I think it's freedom. It is. You know, the book is absolutely freedom. And I, whenever I hear people say that the book of Ecclesiastes is depressing, I, I in ways feel sorry for that person because like, you're not reading it. You think it's depressing because you think the things it's saying are stupid, are important back away from it and realize that all of the things that it's saying, that Ecclesiastes says, 
is chasing the wind, are actually chasing the wind, and then you'll see why it's a beautiful book. You can't change your circumstance, you can only change your perspective. And like to me, life, really, the Christian life, the regular life, it's all about the process. Find your joy, that's what God has for you. Find your joy in your family, your work, in Him. Uh, once again, you can check him out on at Ark Stories on Twitter, Instagram, and search for him on Ark Stories on Facebook. Uh, his upcoming event is September 17th. They will be sharing sports stories at the Avon Theater. I'm John Hammontree. You can find me on Twitter at, at John Hammontree. I'm Carla Jean Whitley, and you can find me on social media at Ink Stained Life. I'm Matt Scalisi. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram and probably several others at Matt Scalisi. And y'all make sure to subscribe to not only our podcast, but also the Arc Stories podcast in iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Thanks, guys.